0: Good Sunday morning! This is the Arts Section, I'm your host Gary Zydek, welcome to WDCB's Arts & Culture Magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events and ideas in the Chicago area arts community while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. <laughs> On today's program, I'll take you with me to the Illinois Holocaust Museum and Education Center for an up-close look at a new exhibit all about the Green Book, which was an important resource for black Americans over a 30-year period between the 30s and 60s. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to talk about Court Theater's latest production. Later in the show, I'll sit down with local historian David Witter to talk about his new book that profiles Chicago's history of distilleries. And we'll hear from a local doctor-slash-magician who invested in a new theater. All that's coming up. Thanks for tuning in for some Arts & Culture this morning. First published in 1936, the Negro Motorist Green Book became an important resource for African-American travelers. Created by mailman Victor Hugo Green, The books were designed to help black Americans navigate open discrimination that existed under Jim Crow laws in many states. The first guide focused on New York City, but soon the publication's scope expanded to other parts of the country and then most of North America.
1: The Green Book was published during the Jim Crow era, during segregation. It was produced from 1936 to 1967 and was a traveler's guide. It was a way that black American citizens could travel safely on vacation to visit relatives.
0: This is Arielle Wenninger, the chief curator of collections and exhibitions at the Illinois Holocaust Museum and Education Center, which is where a new exhibition on the Green Book just opened.
1: This was a guide that gave them security to know that they would be treated well and actually served at the businesses that they would go to listed in the Green Book. And the vast majority were Black-owned businesses, so it actually was very supportive of the community.
0: Titled The Negro Motorist Green Book, the traveling exhibition was developed by the Smithsonian. It arrived at the Skokie-based museum earlier this month and will remain on display through April 23rd. Upon first glance, an exhibit about the Green Book might not seem like a fit for the Illinois Holocaust Museum, but Wenninger says the themes and ideas explored in the exhibition actually align with the museum's overall mission.
1: Some people find when I bring in these kind of shows uh, a little bit surprising since it's called the Illinois Holocaust Museum, but very much part of our mission is to look at the history of the Holocaust, but also because of that, to look at other issues that are about social justice, genocide, human rights violations. So we actually, in our both our programming and our exhibition schedule, have these different themes that we highlight at different points in time. So in the past, we've had exhibitions about Japanese American internment, Nelson Mandela recently, issues around LGBTQ rights. So we combine both shows about Holocaust history and these other issues.
0: I recently visited the North Suburban Illinois Holocaust Museum and Education Center for a closer look at the new exhibit. I sat down with Weniger for a conversation about the Green Book and its creator, Victor Hugo Green. Did I read something that Victor Hugo Green, he got the idea from a a friend who had put together a similar guide for Jewish people going to the Catskills?
1: Yeah, uh, there was a Jewish Traveler's Guide that was produced in 1916 that a friend of his had. It wasn't that he had written it, but so it might have been, and maybe it's just through lore that that's where um, he got the idea to create the Green Book.
0: And then people obviously can learn more about Victor Green in the the exhibition. But from your understanding, then, where did he get the info for these businesses? Was he traveling or? Mm-hmm.
1: That's a great question. So Victor Green, for his entire career, was a mail carrier. And he actually would go out and experience Harlem where he lived and find what businesses were open to black Americans and those that were um, segregated or would not serve people. And so he started logging those down and so the first Green Book is actually all about Harlem. He then utilized other black mail carriers to be sort of his his agents uh, to go out into wherever they were working and report back to him what businesses were um, were safe and comfortable for black citizens and those became the listings so the mail carriers also become one of the main ways that they sell the green book
0: that's another interesting thing is that I think some people might just think Harlem was all safe, but that's kind of a theme throughout the exhibit, that the quote-unquote North, or even New York City, there were businesses that, that discriminated.
1: Yes, and Harlem at the time that Victor Green was living there was quite segregated. So yeah, and we do see that also in the sections of the exhibition that deal with the different directions one would go in the country, traveling North, traveling South, and traveling West. And Oftentimes, I think people think that segregation was really uh, only in the South, and that's just simply not true. It was
0: just a diff- it took a different form in the North and in the West. When we talk about forms, what are some examples uh, in the types of things? Would it be, would there be a spectrum of flat-out refusal of service to threats of violence?
1: Correct. Yes, I, both of those things. And so people were told that, you know, even though the sign said no vacancy, they were not allowed to um they would say oh sorry it actually the hotel actually is all full so just rejection of service being told to enter a business through a back door Um, not being able to sit at a a table or go up to the bar, not being able to actually hand someone money when you were paying for something. All of these things are are forms of, of outright discrimination, but also are belittling to people. And so Victor Green wanted people to be able to go into a business and enjoy themselves and enjoy their partner, their family. And so that's why these businesses
0: are listed in the Green Book. If you're just tuning in, You're listening to The Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm talking with Arielle Wenninger, the chief curator at the Illinois Holocaust Museum and Education Center. We're talking about the museum's latest exhibition, the Negro Motorist Green Book. News of the Green Book spread via word of mouth, but the dissemination of the publication was also aided by a progressive American company.
1: The other major vehicle of getting the Green Books out there was the Esso stations, so which what is today ExxonMobil was then Esso's, Esso Standard Oil. They were very progressive in the hiring of black Americans in all levels of the business, and particularly they hired two black um, marketing professionals, so as to market, of course it's a business, so as to market to black Americans. And it is then through this progressiveness of Esso that um, there are black Uh, owners of franchises of S.O. stations, um, S.O. employees at the filling stations were often African-American, and so the guidebook is actually sold across the country in S.O. SO stations.
0: Is there any evidence that the businesses listed in the, these different editions of the Green Book thrived and, and did well because they were being listed as being saved?
1: Very much so. I mean, these wh- whole areas like Bronzeville hugely benefited from the Green Book. Um, you have to remember, and I tell younger visitors, that you know there was no internet then. And so even if you had a map, you didn't know what the town was that was ahead of you whether it was a sundown town where african-americans weren't allowed to be post-sunset so you know this becomes this essential guide to help people travel to help people go visit relatives that lived in the south or the north yes these whole communities like bronzeville like harlem really were these black entrepreneurial worlds of of businesses that ranged from clubs to restaurants to hair salons and They really did thrive, and unfortunately, post the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964, because black Americans were now legally able to go into any business or any restaurant, a lot of these businesses uh, faltered after that time.
0: We were talking before we started recording, really, the Green Book is all about what businesses are safe, there weren't explicit warnings of businesses not to go to.
1: No, in fact, um, Victor Green was sort of endlessly optimistic and positive, and he was not interested in in writing about where not to go. It was only directing people towards these friendly businesses um, and welcoming businesses. And he often, he would write articles about about different cities about different locations to visit in each annual issue and in nineteen forty nine he wrote a multi-page article about i think it's seven pages about visiting chicago and again nothing in it is is negative it's about yes visiting the businesses in bronzeville but it actually was mostly about visiting the tourist sites like the Shedd aquarium and the planetarium and comiskey park and and he would even list in those what days were free, how to get there, which routes of transportation to take. Um, and so it was just always a, a helpful and almost cheerful guide for travel.
0: From what I understand the Green Book, the first one's in nineteen thirty-six and then new ones come out throughout until the, the mid sixties. The feeling is is that regardless of legislation that enough had changed that they were no longer needed, so they stopped publishing them.
1: Yeah, you know, Victor Green dies in 1960, so his wife basically takes over producing the Green Book. And with the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964, I mean, they published through until 1967, but it becomes less necessary, in a sense, to have the Green Book.
0: There's a number of Chicago references in the exhibition, including a giant neon sign that once glowed in the Kenwood neighborhood. There was a big neon sign at the beginning uh, that says Sutherland, and so that you were telling me when we were walking through that that was a hotel.
1: There were about 200 sites in Chicago that were listed in the Green Book. About 30 of the buildings are still extant, and two of the businesses are still extant. So the Sutherland is standing. It is now um, luxury apartments where it once was a hotel and club. Um, But yeah, so that original sign was found by the developers of the apartment building in the basement of the Sutherland, which is located at 47th and Drexel.
0: And what are the the two businesses that are still standing?
1: So the two businesses that are still here is the Royalton Hotel, which is on the near west side, and the Parkway Ballroom. But it's a a little bit of a a different iteration, but it is still the Parkway Ballroom.
0: Weniger says there's been a great response to the exhibition since it opened in early February. She hopes visitors leave with a better understanding of a piece of American history, and perhaps a little inspired.
1: I think that in many ways this was a very simple solution to a very complicated problem of, of segregation, and I think that that's really something that people can take away, that that you can create really enormous change that benefits people by just doing something that's really quite simple. It doesn't always need to be a Nobel Prize winner who who fixes situations for us in our our country or our society. This was a a mail carrier who came up with a a nice idea to support other businesses and and help people lead joyful, happy lives, and and he did it for 30 years.
0: That's Ariel Wenninger, the Chief Curator of Collections and Exhibitions at the Illinois Holocaust Museum and Education Center. The Traveling Green Book Exhibition will be on display there through April 23rd. You can find more information at ilholocaustmuseum.org. And a quick reminder, make sure to check out the Art Section website over at theartsection.org. You can find past episodes and individual features there available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. And if you want to drop me a line with a suggestion or question, you can email me at gzidic at wdcb.org or find me on Instagram or Twitter with the handle at OnAirGary.
2: Learn to love me a symbol of ways now, today, tomorrow, and on well. My only weakness is a list of crime. My only weakness is well not mine, not mine.
0: And you are listening to the arts section. I'm Gary Zidek. Joining me remotely are the Dueling Critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning,
3: Gary. Good morning, Good morning Gary.
0: Hyde Park based Court Theater is reviving Carol Churchill's rarely produced 1983 play, Fen. It's set in rural 1980s England, the play tells the interconnected stories of a group of women tenant farmers. Directed here by Vanessa Stalling. Jonathan, let's start with you. What did you think? Well,
3: this is a play that is uh, intriguing. There's no question about it. It is socialist. It is feminist. It is tragic. It also can be confusing. Uh, it's a play about what women do to women, what women do to men, and above all, what capitalism does to everyone. As you said, Gary, it's said in... Uh, rich English farmland, which is the, the historic fens of the title, in the 1980s when Margaret Thatcher was reshaping the United Kingdom and its economy at the expense of unions and the working class. Uh, the farmland is being bought up by large industrial conglomerates, and with each further consolidation, it pushes, pushes the former owners, their tenant farmers, and their hired hands down an economic notch. Uh, We see this played out mostly among four generations of women, ranging from 90 years old down to six, and in one key relationship between two farm laborers, Val and Frank. Among the other women in the play are Val's grandmother and her mother and her two young daughters. So Val very much is at the center of things. Val is a strong woman, uh, but she's also a woman who's at the end of her rope. Frank is weak, or at least pliable, as coincidentally all of the the few men in the play are. uh, And they're all seen, with the exception of Frank, they're all seen very, very briefly.
0: And since you just referenced it, let's pause for a moment here. We have a, a clip from Fenn. This is a scene with Vale and Frank.
1: What's wrong? I'm leaving him. I'm going to London on the train. I'm taking the girls. I've left him a note. And that's it. You follow us as soon as you can. It's the only
4: thing. New life. Where you're gonna live? We'll find somewhere together. How much money you got? Fifty-six pounds. Uh, I'll get a job. I just want to be with you.
2: I want to be with you, Val. All right then. What am I supposed to do in London? Where do you want to go? You say, I don't mind. You don't like it here. You're always grumbling about Mr. Tucson. He's not a bad old boy. He don't pay you what he should. He was good to my
0: brother. I am in a panic.
2: Shall I see you tonight?
0: In London. Here. That was a scene from Court Theatre's new production of Carol Churchill's play, Fenn. Jonathan?
3: I think that playwright Carol Churchill absolutely knows her people, and she certainly knows her geopolitics of that era. And she etches the characters in very quick, bold moments, Uh, although very few are seen in really great depth. The story is linear, but even so, it's kind of difficult to understand who's who, with six actors taking on 21 roles, among them adults playing the, the children's roles.
4: Carrie, I'm going to throw it to you. Yeah, I I think one thing that's uh, interesting to note is that this play was written fairly early on in uh, Churchill's association with Joint Stock Theatre Company. Joint Stock was a company that really specialized in almost anthropological approaches to writing plays. Um, Churchill is, of course, the playwright, but they did long periods of research. I think Fenn Fenn is one of the plays of which Churchill has said more of the voices of the people they interviewed were present in the final form than almost anything else that she had worked on. So they spent a lot of time talking to these women. Um, The Fenn, it's an interesting thing. It's like this flatland, the history of conflict there goes back at least to the reign of Charles I, when he sort of hired people to um, go in and increase the court revenue by, uh, you know, draining the Fenlands, where these people had lived for a long time, living off eels, doing some subsistence farming, other kinds of fisheries. And really decided that they wanted to make it. You know, it's sort of the first agribusiness, you know, if you will. Uh, there is a reference in the play that there is a ghost played by Cruz Gonzalez Kettle, who also plays Val, who is back from 150 at that time. Since the play is set in the 1980s, from 150 years before, when there was this huge uprising, which was eventually squashed by the by the by the powers that be of the people of the Fens against. What was going on in their lands, and there's a you know there's a line that I think is pretty telling about what Churchill is suggesting. You know, the ghost and the farmer who has sold his land to this agribusiness. And the farmer says, "Are you angry because I'm selling the farm?" And the ghost says, "What difference will it make?" And the farmer says, "None, none. Everything will go on the same." And the ghost says, "Well, that's why I'm angry." You know, there's a sense of the cyclical nature, and I think you're right, Jonathan. A lot of it is about the cyclical nature of abuse and how people punch down hurt people hurt. And here, you know, the multinational <laughs> agribusinesses are taking over the lands that the farmers have owned. The tenant farmers are lose, are on the verge of losing their jobs or at least facing more privation and fewer wage. you know, the possibility of their wages being slashed. They take it out on their children, their stepchildren, the, the people around them. Um, there's this sense that they really cannot escape. Um, which makes it sound rather grim, and it is, but I would also say that there's also there's a good deal of humor here, and I have to wonder if that doesn't come from the fact that Churchill really was listening to the voices of these women and girls, too, who are present in the play. So there's a sense of veracity. I agree with you, Jonathan. Sometimes the, the story can be a little hard to track in this episodic nature, although they do try to make it clear who is speaking, at least initially. We have supertitles identifying the characters as they come on. But I think if you if you're willing to kind of you know, let go, necessarily knowing moment to moment what's happening. You can, <laughs> I was almost going to say you can sink into Fen, but given that it's kind of marshlands, I don't know if that's a good way to put it, uh-huh. and just kind of let these stories create their own emotional pull on you. There, there is music, there, you know, there are points where they sing, there are attempts to find beauty in what is, you know, as I said, a decidedly rather grim world, and I do give Vanessa Stalling and her entire team at court, a lot of credit for creating, you know, what I think is a, is a very visually arresting um, representation of the themes of the story.
3: Yeah. It's played in a farm field, quite literally a stage spread with earth, within, within which are buried potatoes, which the laborers dig up. In back, however, is a monstrous concrete wall wider and taller than we can see from the audience, looking like a huge dam or a vast retaining wall. Mm-hmm. It's a powerful, even radical image of the industrialization of farming. But I'm not sure that audiences who don't know this play, and that would be most folks who are seeing it, I'm not sure that they will necessarily understand it. They'll say, what is, you know, what, what is that? What, why are they there? Uh, it, is, it is a wall that is not <laughs> required in the script as the farm field actually actually is. And it features a fine ensemble of Chicago actors, among them Cruz Gonzalez-Cadell as Val and Alex Goodrich as Frank. Now, you know, I've previously seen Goodrich only in a really a long series of comic roles and, and musicals, so it's good to see him in a dramatic role. They play Val and Frank, who are lovers. They play them very earnestly, It's not altogether clear to me what brings Val and Frank together, what drives them apart, what brings them together again, and propels them to the play's uh, unhappy ending. Uh, I have seen other productions of Fenn. This is the third production I've seen over the years. And and, and the relationship was more clear to me. So I think the key may be that their scenes need to be played out a little more leisurely, a little more... Time, so we can understand the dynamic between them.
4: Right, and the play is played straight through, no intermission. And I would also call out in terms of the cast, Elizabeth Laidlaw, who I've adored for years, and she, you know, plays a number of roles, including Nell, who is sort of an interesting standalone kind of person in the world of the Fens. The, the local children describe her as a um, you know, and uh, she appears in very masculine clothing. So it's not really clear whether she is in fact transgender or if that's just the what they put upon her because of how the, you know, the character chooses to present, times she's, you know, called a witch, which I think certainly has echoes of, you know, old England and the witch hunts there. And then this idea that women who kind of live on their own, don't fit in, are perhaps particularly vulnerable, although what we see with Laidlaw Nell is somebody who is willing to, you know, take a stance, even if it just means, You know, throwing one of the local brats into a you know into a into a rabbit hutch until they calm down can can get control of themselves. Uh, Yeah, I would I would agree. This isn't the easiest play. It isn't even the easiest Churchill play. And Churchill doesn't always make things crystal clear for audiences. But I think if you're feeling more adventurous, and certainly the themes are still present today, even though this is a play that's 40 years old, in terms of what agribusiness has done to family farms, which we certainly can see happening and ha- have seen happening for many, many years now in the U.S., um, I think that there is there is richness to be to be dug up from the land of the
3: fence. <laughs> Fenn is highly theatrical and certainly intellectually challenging, which is typical of both of those qualities of Carol Churchill's plays. Uh, you know, it may have. Fenn may have little purpose today as a comment on Thatcherism. It is not something that American audiences are particularly concerned with. But it remains a strong view of how the poor are ground down in any era and how women connect and disconnect under difficult circumstances.
4: I was thinking about that when you said it wasn't clear why Val and Frank are together, and I have not seen previous productions, I have read it, but I will say that I think maybe that's part of the, to me that was part, that mystery is also, presents within itself an answer, it's like, well, why not? There's so little for them to hold on to, that if you have one person who treats you kindly, now we don't know, we never hear that Val's husband, and the father of her children, has been abusive, but... You know, maybe there's just this sense that the magic has gone out of everything. So even a relationship with the, you know, the guy who drives the tractor at the next farm over is <laughs> somehow, at least momentarily, can be seen as a, you know, a, a new chance, right? And, and certainly that's a human thing. We may not always understand why people go for the people they go for, but history is filled with uh, with tales of, you know, people who kind of went off impulsively with somebody for whatever reason and it may not be clear to us it may not be entirely clear to them but there is some kind of spark that suggests something is missing from their lives and it's certainly easy with the lives of the women we see in this play to understand that there's quite a lot that they're missing and, and indeed quite a lot that has been denied to them by forces of capitalism by you know by misogyny At one point uh, and i agree with you about goodrich by the way jonathan it was really a treat to see him do this kind of role he's is a farmer And he says how much he loves to hire women because they'll just put up with anything. I've seen women work with icicles on their faces. I admire that. I'm, it's horrifying, right? But it does give you an idea that even in this world of privation, the women are still the ones who are doing, you know, working under even worse conditions than everyone else.
0: So I think you both touched on it, but what? Is, so what does this physical stage look like? It's
4: kind of got these, these dirt scalloped, uh, fr- you know, the, in the thrust, Uh, that represents the farmlands. We see the women working there collecting potatoes, you know, in the initial scene. But it also almost looks like waves of dirt because there's these uh, sort of stainless steel scallops. So it's not a flat, you know, it's not a straight edge. It's sort of a curvy, linear approach. And then as we get back, as Jonathan already mentioned, there's a very tall, imposing gray concrete wall stretching up into the, you know, up into the, up into the skies um, with a door that a high up that opens at one crucial point later in the play. Um, And then there's just, you know, set pieces that move on and off, but it's not, it's nothing that suggests a realistic house or a realistic uh, landscape at all. Even the fence, you know, even the farm, although it's dirt and it's very commonplace to me, it had sort of a, you know, edge of reality, um, sensation to it i think because the way it was scalloped and with the metal and I, I don't know how you would interpret it jonathan but that's kind of how it landed with me
3: well i think it's very uh, very realistic it is a farmer's field and and a uh, a wall that looks incredibly solid and realistic and and uh, as i said people may be puzzled by what the two are doing in the same context uh, one is literal the dirt of the earth the mm. potatoes in it the other is uh, is symbolic or figurative so there's a little bit of everything
0: <laughs> was dirt on stage in those previous productions you saw Jonathan
3: the the wall the, oh, the dirt earth. no yeah the earth is always there. that's called for in in the script you actually see the farm laborers working in in the in the earth working in the fields
0: yeah ah, okay well it sounds like two recommendations court theater's production of fen continues through march 5th and before we wrap up, uh, I know the past uh, month we've touched on Chicago Theater Week a, a couple times, and we're going to mention it again because I guess it's so popular they've decided to extend it with uh, something called Chicago Theater Week Continued. That's
3: right. We're going to talk about it yet again.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
3: yet again. Uh, it was supposed to end, but it has now been extended through for another week through March 5th. And what this means is that they are selling... Uh, sharply discounted tickets, $15 tickets and $30 tickets. Uh, a new batch of them that go on sale tomorrow, the 27th. Some of the shows you can get these discounted tickets for are are will be playing after March fifth. So this is a good opportunity to buy discounted tickets in advance for shows including 1776 uh, being presented. The, the Broadway tour down at the C, CIBC Theater, or the upcoming uh, return of Annie to uh, to the Nederlander Theater, Their, uh, uh, the Boulevard of Bold Dreams at Timeline Theater, which we talked about a week or so ago. Uh, you know shows out at the Marriott Theater in Lincolnshire, Porchlight Theater, uh, Fenn, which we talked about today, will be available for either fifteen dollar tickets or $30 tickets and a number of others. So, uh, buy your tickets before March 5th and you can see the shows actually mm-hmm. at a later date. The place to go is uh, online to chicagoplays.com, the website of the League of Chicago Theaters, chicagoplays.com.
0: All right. Carrie Jonathan, thanks so much.
3: Oh, you're Always welcome, Carrie. Talk with you. Thank you both.
0: I'm Gary Zydek. This is the Arts Section. The structure at 1328 Morse Avenue in Chicago's Rogers Park neighborhood has seen a lot over the past century-plus. Originally called the Morse Theater, it opened in 1912 as a vaudeville and movie house. Decades later, it was revamped and renamed the Coed Theater. In the mid-50s, the theater closed and it housed a synagogue. In 1986, the space became a shoe repair shop and storage facility. Over 20 years later, the building underwent a $6 million renovation and reopened as a jazz club named the Morse Theater. That endeavor was short-lived as suspected arson damaged the space and it changed hands again. It reopened in 2010 as the main stage with management presenting a mix of performing arts. After some initial fanfare surrounding the new venue, eventually the owner shifted the business completely to hosting private events. Then in 2020, the pandemic erupted and shut down the main stage. This past summer, the building reopened again with a new identity, the Rhapsody Theater. The plan is for the historic 200-seat venue to present a mix of magic and music shows and eventually open a full-service restaurant. This latest iteration of the venue on Morse is being led by Dr. Ricardo Rosencrantz, a pediatrics professor at Northwestern slash magician.
5: Chicago is an incredible city historically for magic.
0: The Mexico City native spends a great deal of his time teaching at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern, but around 25 years ago, he developed a new passion outside of the medical field when he started learning about magic. I read something that you wandered into a magic shop in Mexico several years ago and that's really what, what sparked your interest in performing
5: magic? Yes. So actually when I was a child, my, my big passion was opera. I was very interested in opera and classical music. And so fast forward to many years later, about 25 years ago, I was in Mexico City. I'm originally from Mexico and I was in Mexico City on a Saturday. We went to this beautiful old part of town and I like to say that I walked into the magic store that time forgot because it was uh, exactly as old magic stores were very few of them right now in Chicago there's one beautiful store like that so I started buying a few things from him and it got me interested but I still didn't know where to go with this and then I met one of the most amazing people uh, most important people in my life five blocks away from me here in Chicago his name was because sadly he's passed away Eugene Berger And Eugene was the greatest magician that a lot of people have not heard of. Eugene is someone that is in the world of magic, revered and beloved, and um, really had had a philosophy that magic is about transformation. Magic has meaning. Magic is deep. From there, his interest in magic increased,
0: and he realized there was a way to connect his day job and new passion. It was
5: very interesting because at one point, you know, I wanted to perform more, I needed a gig. But then I realized that I could start doing magic at the medical school. What I realized is that I could use magic to tell stories that were relevant to what the students were learning. And I was asked to put together a class and we have a wonderful humanities program at Northwestern. So I created and have been running for the last 13 years, a course for first year and second year medical students on medicine and magic. It's the only one in the country like this that you'll find, it's uh, four credit. Uh, they don't have a test, but they have to perform for each other. And I bring in great magicians to the class that also teach them things. So Teller has been in the class, and uh, they, they, they Zoomed with Copperfield to a class, and then all of my wonderful magician friends that I have. So magic came to my life really through the medical side of things.
0: It's interesting to hear about this class. Is the idea that the magic performance elements help these future doctors with bedside manner or...?
5: communicating com- complex ideas with
0: patients.
5: My thinking and writing on the subject has been really about um, that medicine is a performance art. And having physicians understand that a lot of what we're having to happen, and you know, there's a lot of theoretical work in the world of performance studies. I won't get into that. But in essence, that moment with a doctor patient in many ways is a, is a performance. And doctors need to understand what else is going on in that space. Um, and all sorts of things matter. The words that you choose, the timing that you have, how everybody is in that space, the content that is being delivered. And, and so I realized that doctors uh, could learn from what performers do, and magicians, because magic is such a communicative art form. Part one of it, is I say that medicine is a performing art. And in fact, sometimes I say medicine is a performance art, because it's more like experiential, not just something you see far away. So we spend time with the students understanding how, how that happens, and I feel like they get great classes in terms of communication and, and having an understanding of scripting and that, but this puts it together in a bigger way, because this really talks also about meaning and understanding interpretation. The other thing, of course, is magic is very much about belief. Magic is not about deception, magic is about illusion and the creation of belief. And we need to understand how patients create their own belief, how uh, they will, for example, say yes to this treatment or no to that other treatment. And we need to understand how we can connect with them, given all the different belief models that they, they have.
0: Hey, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Arts Section. My name is Gary Zydek. I'm talking with Dr. Ricardo Rosenkranz about the new performance venue he's opening called the Rhapsody Theater. Chicago has this history with uh, a particular type of magic called close-up magic. Is that what you're
5: interested in? My mentor Eugene was at the heart and center of that. He is considered one of those great Chicago magicians. Most of what he did was close-up. So naturally the very first things that I learned had to do with close-up magic. But I was drawn to always from, from the beginning to the possibilities of a larger stage. Not, again, not a 500-seat stage. In magic, we might sometimes call parlor, which could be a group of 50 people or 60 people. That's what I wanted to do. So, of course, I had a lot of uh, great close-up magic repertoire that I, I learned from Eugene and from other great magicians. But I was building this show with larger pieces that play to larger audiences, 200 people, 300 people, in a stage, in a set with a different storyline and a story arc.
0: Fast forward a bit, and last year, an opportunity... For Rosencrantz to take over an existing performance venue with some great acoustics and historical panache presented itself. We're coming off this, and we're still kind of in this strange period. Were you looking to start your own thing, or was this an opportunity that came into your life?
5: Well, I think pre-pandemic, I was looking for a space because I was never really satisfied with uh, the reality of trying to book a good space in a theater in Chicago. And sadly, that theater that I performed is, is, is no longer... Uh, It's closed the stores forever. So I was looking for a space. This came to us last year in 21. And I had a sense then, and I did a lot of COVID work these last two years in in helping in policy. And in fact, I ended up sort of doing some COVID advisory work. And I think that people want, they want to hear music live. They want to see um, live theater. And when I walked into the space, I also brought a friend of mine who's a fantastic cellist, uh, plays for the Chicago Symphony, and a four-time Grammy award-winning engineer to hear the acoustics. And we were just floored with a room. And so back to my interest in music and opera, and I said, you know, this is exactly that right venue for magic and a whole bunch of different things in music, like chamber music, because chamber music was meant to be performed in a small, intimate space, not necessarily a, a large, large space. And this is a great venue for jazz, and it's a great venue for comedy and for world music. I guess my two passions in, in art have always been music and magic, and now somehow we found a way to do that in, in this place. And that's why the name Rhapsody, because Rhapsody is a musical term. Uh, it's a whimsical term. Sure. You can conjure up a musical Rhapsody and you can conjure up a magical Rhapsody.
0: That was Dr. Ricardo Rosencrantz. He's a managing partner and the artistic director of the Rhapsody Theater in Chicago's Rogers Park neighborhood. He recently premiered a new show titled Physician Magician at the Theater. You can find more information at RhapsodyTheater.com. you're tuned into the Arts Section, I'm Gary Zydek. The city of Chicago will celebrate its birthday on Saturday, March 4th. A lot has changed over the past 185 years, but the city has seemingly always appreciated a stiff drink. Chicago's connection to alcohol is undeniable. Even before the city was officially incorporated, the area's first official business is believed to have been a tavern. Decades later, Prohibition didn't do much to stop drinks from flowing. A new book from local historian David Witter takes a closer look at the city's connection to harder alcohol. The book, titled Distilled in Chicago, reveals an intriguing history of colorful characters and little-known distilleries. I recently caught up with Witter to talk about Chicago's spirited history. So let's start at the, the beginning. You've, you've written books before that usually have to do with, with history. This one has kind of a, a niche. What made you want to write a book about the history of distilleries in Chicago?
6: Well, you know, I've been writing about Chicago and Chicago history for 20, 25 years. And alcohol has always played such a major part in the identity of the city. Chicago, it seemed to be a little more prominent and concentrated. Um, I grew up in a neighborhood where most, like most people in Chicago, there's like six bars within two blocks. So it's it's, it's always been a part of our culture and our our Chicago's identity.
0: For you also, there's even a a deeper personal connection. Uh, You write in the preface, the introduction, that uh, your grandfather operated a a tavern in Gary.
6: Yeah, he owned a tavern in Gary. It was during the, let's say, the 40s, 50s, and 60s, probably, early 70s. And, yeah, and as a child, I would stay, live with my grandparents or stay with them like most many people do. And in his basement, he had a storage area, and I would wander around the basement uh, looking for things. And then um, I discovered that he had this this little cordon-off area and it was locked and then one day the lock was unlocked so I went in there and I found all these pint and half pint bottles of basically we'd call cheap cheap brandy, schnapps, palinkavok, all these liquors now I'm of a Lithuanian background my grandfather owned the Kaunas Tavern, which is a, is a city in Lithuania, and so he, you know, the Eastern Europeans in general in Gary, South Chicago, North Chicago, they enjoyed these are liquors more or less from their home c- culture: the schnapps, the Schlivovits, the the brandies. So he sold these,
0: and so these. Uh, I think you write that some of uh, you picked up a bottle and you saw like a Chicago address. Uh,
6: yeah, and a lot of the label de boucher and a lot of these. Uh, addresses uh were from places from chicago so when i when i started writing the book these these i saw these labels and the memories kind of started coming back of the blackberry brandy and the schnapps and all these different liqueurs that 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 were basically made in chicago
0: and you referenced you know growing up in a neighborhood with a bunch of taverns and when i think of uh, you know those neighborhood taverns and uh Chicago I think of like the neon beer signs of like the old style or Miller in chapter one is titled the Chicago was a a town that made beer not whiskey Um, and you get into it in the in the chapter but maybe you can give me the the Cliff Notes version, why is that? Why was Chicago such a beer town?
6: You know, when Koval opened up in 2008, it was the first distillery that had been in Chicago for at least 100 years. There are many reasons for this. Um, first of all, yes, Chicago was a beer town. Our first wave of immigrants were uh, German and mm-hmm. Irish. The Germans actually kind of revolutionized uh, brewing in America by bringing lager beer and their, their ability to make lager beer and so a lot of you know schoenhoff and there's a lot of there's still a a, a brewery school downtown um on green street that 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 has trained many of the master brewers in the country for almost the last century and we had germans and irish so chicago made a lot of beer um and it was there was no you have to remember there was no refrigeration we didn't have uh, coke or juices or sprite People drank either water or, you know, spirits that would kind of last ciders, hard ciders, beers. There was, of course, whiskey and things that were distilled in Chicago. And then about the 1880s, 18, even before that, you had the Whiskey Trust, which was located in Peoria, which is, I think, one of the more original aspects of my book. I don't think a lot of people know about this, but basically it's the same. The Carnegies, the Rockefellers, you know, the Carnegies had steel, Rockefellers had oil. A lot of these unknown sort of faceless uh, industrial people, rich people, got together and decided that they were going to make all the whiskey in Peoria, much of the whiskey in the entire country. Um, Peoria was located on the Illinois River. It had river transportation, railroads near Chicago, Peoria, corn. In the farms in the area oak trees wood to make the the barrels and so from about 1880 to 1920 as much as 40 percent of the entire nation's whiskey supply was made in peoria it was controlled by the whiskey trust and there were a few distilleries in chicago but they were just almost a combination between organized crime and big business where they they bought some out they priced them out they would open a whiskey store and undersell them until they went out of business And there were even a couple examples where they were forced out, forcefully dynamite or threats. But basically, the distilleries were all gone in Chicago by, you know, 1890. But
0: what would have happened if uh, prohibitions never enacted with the Peoria Whiskey Trusts just kept on going?
6: Perhaps. Yeah, I think it it was winding down. And I think that um, obviously, you know, we, we get most of our whiskey now from the Tennessee, Kentucky, Louisville area, they had shipping on the Ohio River, but they, they didn't have the access to the rails that they had in Peoria. So I think with the advent of trucking after, you know, 20s, 30s, 40s, that they were able to get more, ship more product out of the mountains. If you've ever been to any of these distilleries in Tennessee, they're up in the mountains and they, they're not on, they're not close to a rail yard. So I think eventually these these whiskey companies would have gotten into the mainstream, you know, after Prohibition. But for a time yeah, Peoria kind of ruled the whiskey of America.
0: Yeah, that is an interesting piece of history that I don't think many people know about. Uh, a lot of uh, recognizable names pop up in, in the book in different contexts. One uh, colorful character that, that pops up that I knew of because of the famous Frank Sinatra song, uh, Chicago. You write a lot about Billy Sunday. The
2: town of Billy Sunday not
6: shut down. Yeah, Billy Sunday was a colorful character. He started out playing with the Chicago White Stockings. He was actually an all-star baseball player, and he was fairly well known uh, even that day. And I guess one day he was with his teammates uh, on the near South Side, and uh, they would drink after the game and in corrals like baseball players, like a lot of men do. And the people from the Pacific Garden Mission, which is still there, it's been it was in the South Loop. Uh, now it's a little further south, on like 13th and Canal, but it's been there since the 1870s. They came and approached him and gave him the sermon, and he he transformed, and he became the nation's leading preacher. He became sort of the forerunner to Billy Graham, or many of these people now that are on these, these religious television stations. Uh, he was just a huge celebrity. He traveled the country in Tent Revival. He was making uh, the equivalent of $100,000 a year, attracting five, ten thousand 10,000 people for his shows. He advised presidents, uh, the Republican presidents, Coolidge, Harding during the 1920s. He was very much like the foreigner Billy Graham, very charismatic, and, and his main sermon was anti-liquor, so he was one of the main forces behind Prohibition.
0: He was based in Chicago. Yeah, yeah
6: he traveled around but he's buried in uh forest forest lawn cemetery i believe so he was based here yeah
0: if you're just tuning in you're listening to the arts section i'm gary zydeck i'm talking in studio with author david witter about his new book distilled in chicago a history what impact did prohibition have on chicago
6: well obviously it, it unfortunately changed the city forever our identity is still tied to the prohibition gangsters al capone and so forth uh We've been recently kind of celebrating as Michael Jordan's 60th birthday or something like that. He he eclipsed Al Capone for a short time, but I think now it's back to Al Capone. We have gangster tours and gangster movies, and there must be a series or movie coming out. And actually, the, the it's a little bit featured in the book, Jim, Big Jim Colissimo and he sort of ran the Levy District, which was the precursor to uh, all of our organized crime. The Levy District was... Uh, just south of downtown along Clark Street and about the 20th Cermac, they now it's called Surmac 14th Archer, Clark, Wabash. And it was just a, a very large district devoted entirely to vice. Prostitution was the first lure, but drinking was the second. And Colissimo was the, he was the man who eventually ran, not ran that area, but he was the more, more, most wealthy and prestigious person who was involved in the, the prostitution and the gambling and the things of that nature and Johnny Torrio, who was uh, Calissimo's sort of right-hand man or advisor, very smart, very much almost like Meyer Lansky. And about 1918, he saw a prohibition coming down the pike, and he said, "This is this is going to be the way we make our money because people are going to want liquor. So let's just let let me take some money out of the till, and we'll start buying breweries and make ways to bootleg whiskey." Caillou Simo was against that. Apparently, he thought we'll just stick with the gambling and the prostitution. This this prohibition stuff is going to be a waste of money. So he was eventually probably assassinated for his unwillingness to put the resources of what was the fledging Chicago gang into making alcohol. And then Capone, who was much more bloodthirsty, much more aggressive, he took over I, I suspect around nineteen twenty one these things this is not like these people signed contracts and you know announced in the newspapers, but he took over. <laughs> and then you know Al Capone was making you know the equivalent of of, of tens of millions of dollars a year. Uh, it is high mostly on bootleg liquor. Yeah.
0: I want people to read the books. So we're not going to do step by step. So if we fast forward a little bit, you know, once Prohibition ends, and then, of course, uh, you know, was World War II. The uh, post-war, though, by then, industry is already established, and there's no thought of a, a distillery opening up in Chicago post-World War II. Well,
6: this is once again uh, somewhat tied to organized crime. Um, Al Capone was convicted on federal charges. And Frank Nitti, who most people agree was the follower of Al Capone, he didn't want to get involved with the federal government. Uh, Spirits and and whiskey was uh, basically controlled by the federal government, very much overseen. You know, today we have the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. Nitti did not want, you couldn't bribe the feds. Al Capone went to prison under federal charges. Nitti went to prison under federal charges. So the organized crime... Uh, syndicate in Chicago decided just to stick with beer because the feds didn't bother because it was lower uh, alcohol, but they made, made plenty of money. So at had the Manhattan Brewery on like 39th and Halstead around there. You had all these breweries that organized crime, bought up and controlled, and they continued to make, make beer. And they just didn't want to get involved in, in the spirits because it just brought on too much heat, as they would say
0: and what's yeah really fascinating what you've already referenced you talk about contemporary times and koval distillery it's hard to believe that that's really the first distiller to open in chicago for for such a long time and that that was 2008
6: yeah i mean the, the Coval's a very interesting story they're very much featured in the book when when they opened the thought of opening in 2007 there was absolutely no laws there was no there was no there was no laws there was no way to get permits because there was no permit process it, they they just com- they just completely opened a new industry and sonnet who, who was the uh the owner, the co-owner with her husband. She ended up going to Springfield. She tells these stories about being pregnant, driving to Springfield back and forth to get this bill through. And there's a local alderman, Greg Harris, who was a prominent, uh, state representative who just retired. Uh, he worked with them, but basically they first had to get one to open a distillery, then to sell on site and then to bottle, and then to sell throughout the city, and then to sell throughout the nation, and all this had just, all this law had to just be perfectly written from scratch.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. And now, since then, there's uh, there's been a number of distilleries that have opened up.
6: Yeah, a few, which is, it's interesting because Frances Willard, who was uh, sort of the, actually much more effective than Billy Sunday in, in the, she was head of the Women Christians Temperance Movement located in Evanston. and. Um, you know, Sunday kind of got all the press, but uh, Francis Wooler did a lot of uh, work behind the scenes to uh, push for uh, temperance and eventually prohibition, which she didn't see. She died before that. But ironically, Few is like four blocks uh, north of, of where Frances Willard's home is where the WCTU was more or less established. And then, you know, I kind of end the book with there's a place called Wolf Point Distillery, which is in the Fulton Market area, and it almost becomes full circle because the city started with the men meeting to drink whiskey at Wolf Point, the you know, tired, cold, hungry trappers. And uh, so, so Wolf Point Whiskey or Wolf Point Distillery kind of reenacts this tradition and their label is a, is a, a bonfire with a wolf and you, so almost, you see almost Native American like teepees or a fire in the background, some kind of distant thing. And uh, so it, it almost has come full circle where Chicago uh, began more or less because men met because they wanted to drink spirits and eat and also rest. And then now we're kind of gotten back to that where, you know, after a hundred year or so or more absence, we're, we're making distilled spirits again. And it's become kind of a mini, mini industry. It'll never be a giant industry, but it's sort of a mini industry.
0: Right. Of course, you mentioned that chicago and spirits to some people and the first thing they'll think of is malort where does malort fit in the the history
6: malort fits in um you know I, I kind of i it's not it was never officially I say there wasn't a distillery in chicago for 100 years they did make malort it was on it was on such a low-key effort basically malort was was began by by mr jepson who was an immigrant from sweden um malort is a derivative of of they call it Basque or Basque, it's a, it's a Swedish word that I can't pronounce, but it's a very popular liqueur in, in Sweden made out of uh, wormwood. And he came here and he was selling cigars and he sort of, as a side, he started making this this liqueur probably in his garage or basement for the, the local Swedes in Andersonville. He lived in Andersonville, which is, you know, Broadway, Lawrence area. And uh, th- there's a, one of the stories, whether it's true or not, uh, he he made a lot of money during the Great Depression because he would sell door to door out of a suitcase, and the police stopped him. He told the police officer it was medicine. The police officer opened the bottle and drank. He said, "Yeah, this is definitely medicine." <laughs> and go go back to the drugstore. So he was able to sell during Prohibition, and then a man named Brody bought it, who was a lawyer. You know, and he did it kind of as a hobby. So it was very very. Malort was very just almost like a mom and pop neighborhood or you know outfit until maybe 10 years ago. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I mean, it was just, it was just almost hand-delivered hand by van to local <laughs> taverns and that kind of thing. Brody uh, eventually just basically gave the business to his secretary. He was a lawyer, and he had, you know, so he gave it to his secretary, who um, I interviewed her. She lived on uh, Sheridan in Belmont, and she ran the company during, like, the 80s, 90s, and then uh, it, that's when it sort of had its boom yeah and in, in college kids started drinking it and uh you know it became sort of a cult liquor first it was first with tradesmen and i actually would drink it i had friends that i grew up with that were tradesmen and i I actually like it and i would drink it and uh but then the hipsters sort of caught on to it <laughs> and now it's it's become the hipster liqueur and i actually saw the rolling stones as a hundred thousand other people have a couple of years ago at soldier field and Mick Jagger walked out on stage. He said, "I've been to Chicago thirty-nine times, and I haven't had an Italian beef for my lord." I guess he's not doing it right. So, so it's it has cachet, yeah. Mick Jagger, yeah. yeah. Well,
0: I was going to ask what your personal opinion is, but it sounds like you like it.
6: Yeah, I do, and I actually, I, I maybe it's me. I don't think it's bad. Probably growing up in my grandfather's house, having all those spirits in the basement, but I, I don't. I don't wince or anything of that nature, you know, I it's it's fine.
0: I don't um, I wouldn't say I ever crave it, but yeah, I don't think it's as bad. It has this reputation of, of being a bad tasting. I think it tastes like alcohol, it has a distinct flavor.
6: Real different. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's nothing at all like it. I mean it's not like any whiskey or anything like it. It's completely unique. Right. It's now owned by C and H distilleries, which is a really big company It's no longer made in a garage and <laughs> shopped in suitcases.
0: You mentioned uh, Mick Jagger, I've I've never interviewed him, but you know, I'll interview artists that come through Chicago and I always make sure to ask, you know, what they think of the city. A lot of times they make sure to mention that they try deep dish and then they do a shot of malort. So mm-hmm. it has become kind of this cultural thing where everyone who visits Chicago feels like they need to to try malort what's the response been like to your book
6: people have always enjoyed spirits let's let's be realistic about it but it's it's become I think it comes in waves um and I think there's the wave is going up now with distilled spirits because of all the the you know the craft spirit places and just because of it just it's, it seems like it's time uh, one interesting thing I've noted in my travels throughout the liquor industry is that rye has become very very popular when i was a young man or a kid it was seen as a lower class drink for you know people who were really desperate for liquor and you could buy bottles of rye for four or five bucks and there was only a couple brands now if you go to a to a local liquor store a high-end one you've got a whole aisle just of ryes let alone whiskeys
0: excellent so uh for folks they want to pick up a copy, local bookstores.
6: Local bookstore, Amazon.
0: Well, David, I enjoyed learning a lot about this stuff, and thanks for coming in to, to talk to me about it.
6: I enjoy your show very much. You cover such a wide array of, of artists and the arts and things in the city that, that no other, very few other entities uh, tread upon, so it's always something different.
0: I appreciate it, and now you're, you're part of it. David, thanks so much. Thank you. That was David Witter. His book, Distilled in Chicago, is out now. You can find more information at his website, davidwitterchicago.com.
2: Chicago, Chicago, that in town. Chicago, Chicago.
0: That's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section, but remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website over at theartsection.org there you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want plus pictures and links that go along with all the stories you hear on the show my name is gary zydek i hope you'll join me again next sunday morning at 8 a.m right here on 90.9 and 90.7 fm for another edition of the Arts section until then i hope you have a great week thanks for listening
2: in Chicago Chicago my hometown Chicago Chicago that toddling town Chicago, Chicago I'll show you around. I love it. That you bottom dollar you lose the blues in Chicago Chicago. The town of Billy's Sunday could not shut down On oh, State Street, that great street I just want to say They do things that they never do on Broadway